Okay. Um, yeah, so welcome to Grok Science. <laughs> Today I'm joined by uh, Marcelo Gleiser, and uh, I invited him onto the program to speak about one of his books, uh, The Island of Knowledge. So, Marcelo, could you explain to us what is the island of knowledge? Sure. So that's just a metaphor that I came up with to describe pretty much how science works and how we can make sense of the world. So the idea is this. If you imagine that what we know of the world fits in an island, um, as we know more about the world, uh, the island the island grows, right? Now, as... With any other island, it's surrounded by an ocean. And in this case, given that the island is the island of knowledge, the ocean is the ocean of the unknown. That is what we don't know about the world, right? And so the idea is that as you are growing with your knowledge, you are conquering, so to speak, you know, the territory of the unknown with the new science, you know. And this, of course, I'm, I'm using this mostly for science, but you could adapt this metaphor to any kind of human endeavor that produces knowledge. It doesn't need to be scientific knowledge, but let's focus here for obvious reasons on scientific knowledge. Um, and so the idea, though, is the following. This is where things start to become interesting, is that people may have a bit of a, uh, this position called scientism, where you believe that science will come and conquer it all, so to speak, you know, that all questions about the world can be understood and responded within a scientific discourse. And what the island of knowledge is saying is that that is false, that it just cannot happen, because what happens is as the island grows, so do the shores of our ignorance. And the idea is that the shores of our ignorance are essentially the boundaries between the known and the unknown, Right. And that's what we're doing cutting edge science. So if you're doing your PhD research, you know very well that science starts in ignorance is about what we don't know. I mean, we have some body of knowledge, but it's really about the exploration of what we don't know. Right. And then as it expands our knowledge, it creates new questions, stuff that you couldn't have contemplated before. Right. So to give two very pedestrian examples uh, one in astronomy and one in biology. So in astronomy, the telescope changed completely the way we understood the universe and how we could get information about the universe. So once you had the new tool, you could start asking questions about the universe that before you couldn't have contemplated before. Uh, contemplated, And with biology, it's the same thing. So think of the microscope, which is also from the 17th century, and the whole concept of what life is changed completely with the invention of a microscope because suddenly life could be really tiny. You know, really tiny things could be alive, which was something that up to the 17th century was inconceivable, you know, to imagine that invisible things to the eye could actually be alive, right? So essentially the point here is that as you develop new knowledge through the construction of new tools, or to the construction of new concepts, what happens is that you may answer some questions, but then new ones will pop up that you couldn't have predicted before. And this process is ongoing, and as long as we have money to do science, it's not going to end. 
So that's the idea of the island of knowledge. Uh, very interesting. It, it, uh, it's interesting because I think that one of the things it points to is this interplay between um, there's some moment of inspiration that has to leverage the human imagination to get to further knowledge, right? You, you speak about tools as giving us the foothold, right, to get the next set of, to expand the island once again. Um, so I, I'm curious as to sort of, how, what is a hypothesis, like using this analogy? Right? What's a scientific hypothesis? So there is an interplay between, between the way we think about nature and the way we test our ideas about nature. So the way we think about nature is we formulate a hypothesis, right, which will be in any scientific uh, endeavor, right? And we will eventually try to confirm or not the hypothesis through experiments, right? This is true in any kind of science, right? It doesn't matter if it's the physical sciences or the biological sciences. There is a method. People may not like it. Some people criticize it, but that's the way we work. Really, you know, I mean, and and the point is that the tools, uh, they help us, you know, falsify our hypothesis. They help us make sure that the ideas that we have have something to do with nature, because, you know, imagination is very powerful and nature has its own ways of working. And the two are not always in you know, in tandem there, you know, it may very well be that you have a beautiful idea that just doesn't work, you know, it's not being used by nature. And so you have to find a process that can distinguish between the ideas that we have about how nature works and the way nature works. Now, so... I see. So the hypothesis is part of the scientific method for building the distinguish the distinguishing factors between nature's the way it works and the way we believe it to work exactly and 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 so science in that process becomes a constructed narrative you know what we're doing is that we're constructing a narrative of how nature works that narrative changes in time and it changes in time because the way we look at the world changes in time so you know, a biologist in the 21st century thinks very different, differently from a biologist from the early 20th century and certainly very different from one, you know, in the 17th century. And that means that the way we think about the world is always changing because of the new hypotheses that we formulate and the way we are able to test them with our tools. So that's sort of the the narrative that we construct. But on the other hand, there is another part to this, which is kind of interesting, which is, but then there is, there is all this stuff which is beyond what we can see. There is this stuff that our tools cannot probe, you know, the stuff that our methods of inquiry cannot reach. And so there is this whole invisible side to reality, so to speak, that we are just ignorant of. And you may say, oh, but it's just a matter of time, you know, as science progresses, we're going to see everything and eventually we're going to see the whole totality of reality. And, and the point is that you just can't, right? You can't because every tool has a certain reach. You know, you can see things up to a certain point, up to a certain level of resolution. And that is true in biology and in high energy particle physics, which is closer to my research, 
where you have these giant machines, you know, that you can probe like the Higgs particle and all that little stuff. But even those amazing machines, which are in a sense, you know, beautiful microscopes, so to speak, um, they cannot probe beyond a certain limit, which means that even our tools, because of their very own nature, can only give us a partial reading of what's truly going on, which basically means that we are partially blind to a lot of what's going on out there. But is it not that we're just waiting for the next wave of inspiration to push the tool forward again? Yes, and that will keep going on. That will happen and happen and happen. Has been happening. And, you know, you compare the tele- the microscopes you use in the lab now to what, you know, Van Leeuwenhoek developed in the late 1600s. And you're like, holy cow, right? I mean, the guy couldn't see anything. Look at what we can see now. And that's awesome. But, you know, 200 years from now, the microscopes or whatever you're going to be using will be much more powerful. You're going to give you a much more complete description of things. But that doesn't mean that it has an end, meaning every tool will always have a limit, right? And that's just because technology has limits. You know, if you think of um, everything is, in the end, built from electrons moving around in circuits, right, and and lenses, which are made of glasses. And, And so there is a very physical limit to what we can do with those materials. Now, in the future, you know, 200 years from now, what the heck do we know about 200 years from now, right? You can have a completely different way of probing matter and probing life, right? But that doesn't mean that that is going to be the final way. So what I like to think about is that science is an ongoing process and is by necessity an incomplete process of discovery about the world. So, and in the book, you know, I talk about the knowledge, which is the island. I talk about the ocean of the unknown, which is the stuff that we could learn about nature as we probe deeper and deeper. But then there are also the unknowables. You know, there are things, questions you can ask about the world that you cannot answer, you know, and... And that's kind of like dangerous territory. So what the heck, never is a very tough word, you know, to use in the sciences because, hey, you know, I mean, you're always developing these amazing things, you know, and so what could be impossible today may be possible tomorrow. For example, artificial life, right? I mean, that's sort of like, and that's true, but artificial life is not what I'm talking about. So there are certain questions that you can ask within science that, Unless you change the rules of the game, meaning you change the laws of nature as we know them today, which is possible, but that's sci-fi, right? I mean, you have to work with something here. You just don't know how to answer. Let me give you an example close to your field, okay? The origin of life on Earth, right? So some genius guy can come up with creating uh, artificial life in a laboratory, we are really, really far away from that. I'm talking bottom-up. This is sort of like the Miller experiment, which we had actually done in Chicago. You probably know about it, right? It's an awesome thing, right? But that experiment is so freaking far away from life. You know, it just tells you that you can build the basic amino acids, right, to kind of start your protein chaining. Man, that is not life at all. It just tells you that the basic ingredients for life are possible, right? We can fool around with them in primordial earth. But still, 
let's imagine that one day, you know, Danny Chan, when he's 50, is going to be this, have this awesome laboratory at Caltech or at the Scripps Institute, whatever, and he's going to f- make life, right? Um, great, you're going to make life. You cannot know if the life you make artificially follow the same uh, metabolic pathway that the life that appeared here at least 3.5 billion years ago, unless someone proves a theorem that there is only one or very few pathways to life, you know, biochemical, metabolical pathways to life, the life you make in the laboratory is not the life that appeared here. And that is a question that because the clues are gone, essentially, because, you know, the memory of life is written in rocks, right? But when you start going back 3.5 billion years ago, there are no rocks. So the rocks are all gone or the rocks that you can deal with are so degraded that it's incredibly difficult to find biosignatures there. So basically, you just can't reconstruct that story. So that's a very simple question. How did life appear on Earth? They're going to say, uh, I don't know. That's an unknowable, I think. Does that imply that we shouldn't be going after some of these unknowable questions? That they're sort of a waste of resources? <clears throat> awesome question. And the answer is absolutely we should go after them with everything we've got, you know? And because the point is not necessarily in finding the answer, but in searching for the answer, you know? So a lot of people that I tell my ideas to about the island of knowledge, the unknowable, say, what's the point? You know, I mean, if you can't get to the final theory of everything, right, the physicist next door to you, you know, if you go to the physics, the Enrico Fermi Institute, these guys are going after the theory of everything with their super strings and stuff like that. And in fact, I, I know a lot of them. And I have more friends in the astronomy and astrophysics department. In fact, the dean of sciences was my boss, my, my, my postdoc boss at Fermilab. The dean of science is Rocky Cove now. Um, anyway, so... You know, the point is that there is this unifying theory of everything and the four forces of nature, and that's all there is to it. And I say, you cannot know that. You cannot know if there are only four forces of nature, because what you can say is that we now know that there are only four forces of nature, but there is nothing stopping us in five, ten years to find a new force of nature, a fifth force, which doesn't fit into this one, and then... It's not a theory of everything anymore. It's a theory of everything we know now. So this idea, you know, of finality in science, which is very widespread, you know, that we bottom of things, is, I think, fallacious. It's just wrong, you know, from a philosophical perspective. And, and, and that doesn't mean that science is failing. You see, that's the point, is that people attach a certain kind of value to science where they say, if science can't answer everything, then science is no good. That is completely silly and wrong because we can't answer everything. And science is awesome because look how much we have answered. So it's not about the end. It's about what's going on right now. And so if you want to look for origins of life, of course you should be looking. If you want to look for a unified theory of nature, of course you should be looking. But not with the illusion that there is a final answer. But with the certainty that there is a process where we discover more and more about these things. And by discovering more and more about these things, we, re- we enrich humanity's knowledge. 
and we enrich our culture as a species, you know, and that's really where the value of science is. Yeah, I really enjoyed the, I, I enjoyed the sort of thought that um, science is like this incredibly human endeavor, right, spring from our minds, right, to form the way that we understand reality. But let's say we saw some aliens or something, they would have a new set of symbols right, in order to understand the world around them that may be very based in their own particular being than, than our own. Exactly. So that's a very good point because people always talk about is there a universal language, you know, of nature, right? And, uh, and that's a big, big debate, right? So mathematicians love to talk about this stuff. You know, if, if mathematics is sort of true, you know, in a fundamental way, or if it's a human invention. So they talk, is mathematics a discovery? Like the laws of mathematics are kind of floating in some sort of platonic, you know, paradise and just pluck them once in a while? Or just are we just making it all up, right? And, um, and that's kind of a no answer kind of question, but it's a very interesting kind of question because I tend to think of, of mathematics much more as an invention we as a species evolved in a very specific set of environmental circumstances, you know, under a star that is 6,000 degrees at the surface, which is bright white, and when it filters here, it has a very specific window of wavelengths that we can see, and that no wonder we can see in the visible, because if we saw, you know, in, in the microwaves, you know, the tigers would eat us, right? So... So there is a reason for this optimization mechanism, you know, through natural selection. You survive because you are well adapted to the environment. So we are very much the product of this planet, right? And so aliens are going to have a different planet, and they're going to be the product of that environment, and they're going to think in ways which are appropriate to that environment. And so I think that to a very large extent, the mathematics that we use is a mathematics that came from the way our brain evolved to survive in this planet, you know. But you can say, hey, but if they have a heartbeat, you know, they can count. Yes, so they'll have the integers, and they, you know, if they have the integers, then they have the idea of a set, and blah, blah, blah. I said, sure, they may have similar concepts, you know, and some of them will overlap. But they may not all overlap. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's very enlightening to see there's so many connections within the history of thought and science, right? You can bring in quotes from old thinkers, and they still ring true in different ways um, in the today's modern world. And I'm curious as to, in this, in this like weird example of an alien and, and humans, right, and the sort of universal language that may not be able to bind them together, what about present-day humans versus if we went back in time and, like, looked at an old thinker, right? Would they understand? Would, would they be able to catch up into our science? Or are they a product too much of the world that they lived in? That's a very good question. It's a very difficult question. And I think that um, it would be incredibly hard for them to catch up, you know, because it is so different. You know, so Arthur C. Clarke, you know, the famous sci-fi writer wrote 2001 <clears throat> he said something that the technology of efficiently advanced civilization is indistinguishable from magic meaning if we find an alien which is much more advanced than we are that technology to us 
will just look like magic because it's so far-fetched, you know. And I think here on my father, right? So my father was born in 1927. He's not here anymore. But if he looked at an iPhone or if you just look at what the heck is going on right now, here I am sitting on a wireless machine, right? There's no wire anywhere. And I'm talking to you in Chicago, and I'm here in New Hampshire, and you could be in Antarctica right now. It wouldn't make a difference. And that is just mind-boggling. Now, imagine if Columbus had seen something like that, right? I mean, it is such a completely different frame of mind and values that I think it would take a very, very, very special person in the past to actually digest what's going on right now. Maybe Galileo could do it, or some some guys that are so, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, who kind of foresaw so much of it. But I think it would take a very special kind of person, and most people, they are so embedded in their framework and the way, way they think about the world that they'll be just more scared than anything else about what's going on right now. You know, um, and they would, and because of the value of religion in the past that was so prevalent in the way most people thought of that, um, I think they would immediately attach some sort of religious significance to all of this. And, you know, in religion, you have good or evil, you know, and I'm not sure they're going to go towards the good side, you know. So I think they'll say, oh, this is something, this is the devil, or whatever, you know, and they would be just scared scared, very scared of the whole thing. That's, but that's an opinion. Of course, we can't know. Right, right. No, I mean, I, it's just, it's interesting, right? Because I think that there's a parallel into, like, the sort of the answer to that question and this book, The Island of Knowledge itself, right? Because you're pushing against this idea of scientism, right? And, and in some ways that has, people are adopting that in order to try to make sense of the increasingly complex world around them, right? Without without a set of uh, guidances, right? And to sort of make things simpler, they have to say, oh, there's understand, there, there will be understanding from the people who understand, right? Scientists as being the people who understand. Right. No, I think it's true. And so what you're talking about goes very deep into a sort of existential crisis that has been happening since the 18th century where um, when religion went sort of down, right, so to speak, in terms of its power to explain the world, explain, you know, like Dr. Evil explained, um, then, you know, explain. Uh, then it is clear that um, what has happened is that people started to rely more and more in science to take care of the world. There is no question that science has changed the way we live in terms of what he has done, you know, from an ag agricultural perspective, you know, the crops are much more efficient because of it. And medicine has changed our lifespan and has increased, obviously, our quality of life in tremendous ways. And so, and energy and comfort, you know, I mean, just think of the way we live now and the way people lived in the 19th century. We have refrigerators, we have air conditioners, you know, so clearly things are much, much better because of it. But on the other hand, there is a lot of pressure on science to solve all the problems, you know. So, okay, we are better at agriculture, but we still can't feed everybody. Yeah, we are better at medicine, but we still have illnesses, you know, that 
are attacking people that shouldn't be sick, like children and young people. And so, and, and, and now we have energy issues and we have global warming and how are we going to take care of all of that? How are we going to do this? And so I think that, yes, the um, uh, credibility of science is incredible, is, is very important. But on the other hand, I think we have to have awareness that we cannot just rely on scientists to make a difference. We have to create a more public and widespread awareness so that people can change their ways of relating to each other and the world in order to help alleviate the problems that we face. You know, so there has to be a kind of like a, a constructive engagement you know, between the sciences and the public in order to really, really do something that will make a change for everybody. Well, yeah, amazing. That's that's very inspiring. Um, so, uh, the Island of Knowledge was uh, written in 2014. But I understand that you have a new book called "The Simple Beauty of the Unexpected." Right. So, this book just came out, and the subtitle is "A Natural Philosopher's Quest for Trout and the Meaning of Everything." And and it basically, I don't know if you know a book called "Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance," but I am familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, this book is, I, I, years ago, I decided I wanted to try to learn how to fly fish, you know, living here in New England. And it's really an apprenticeship, you know, and it's an apprenticeship that I took very much as a kind of a spiritual connection with nature. And what I've done in this book is I, it's sort of like a memoir where I talk about traveling around the world to scientific conferences, you know, in, um, England and Italy and Iceland and southern Brazil, where I go to these conferences to discuss a certain topic, you know, from solitons in physics to the origin of life and to other things and history of science. There are all sorts of different things that go into there. And I also go fly fishing in these places, you know, and it's about this arc of how my evolution as a fly fisherman uh connected with my evolution as a scientist and with a sort of a climax at the end where my whole worldview sort of changes because of the way modern science places humanity in the universe and the way we humans deal with our planet here. So it really has, a, it's a mix of all sorts of different things. Yes, there is some fly fishing in it, but the fly fishing is more a conduit than the goal of the book. If it's not going to spoil too much of the book. Um, so w how does science place humans these days? People talk about Copernicanism, which basically means that, you know, ever since Copernicus, you know, our place in the universe has changed because before, um, you know, the humans were at the center of everything. Earth was the center of everything. We were super important, created by God. And then comes Copernicus and says, well, no, Earth is just a planet. And so it's just revolving like the other planets around the sun. We sort of lose that centrality, that importance. And for the next 400 years, the more we have learned about the universe, the less important we became. You know, So the sun is, is not just one star. There are 300 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Our galaxy is not the only galaxy. There are hundreds of billions of galaxies out there. 
and then the galaxies are moving away from one another in the expansion of the universe, and even the matter we are made of is only 4% of the total matter that exists. Everything else is this thing called dark matter and dark energy. So really, we are pretty irrelevant in the big scheme of things. And that is kind of like the new Copernican view. But, and here comes the twist, to me, that view is incorrect because what we have found with modern astronomy and biology and physics is that actually Earth, the planet Earth, is a very rare place. Not that there aren't other planets that have water and carbon and all that, but Earth has all that and it has a combination of properties that makes it incredibly good for long-term life, you know, for supporting life for a very long time. And I think, so I think Earth is a very rare planet. And because Earth is a very rare planet, with this incredible diversity of life, and because humans are, in a sense, at the top of this chain where we are the only animals that are really truly self-aware and able to think about the importance of life in the big scheme of things, we go back to a certain kind of moral centrality in the cosmic sense in which we humans are, in a sense, the way the universe expresses itself through intelligence. And because of that, we have the moral predicament to actually protect life and protect our planet because as far as we know this is the only one that has life at this level of complexity if there are others great but we don't know about them we won't know about them for a very long time and hence we're truly important again so this is something i call human centrism which is an idea i developed at my first interview with you guys you know in the book at the edge of creation and that I have, uh, I, that I kind of revisit in the island of knowledge and build it to a certain kind of a climax in the simple beauty of the unexpected. So we are, I am proposing a very anti-Copernican view of how humanity is central to the universe. I see. And, and it seems to, it seems to bring a, a moral implication along with it. Uh, that we should be in charge of, we're sort of custodians of the planet or something like this. That's exactly right. In fact, I think I even used that word in one of my writings, yes. So we are the protectors of life, you know, and we should be mindful of that because we won't find another planet like, uh, like Earth, you know, because this is our planet. This is where we evolved. We are completely bound to it, you know, and other planets are just not going to be as hostile to Earth. Even if we try to terraform these other planets, they're just not going to be as good to us as this one is. And so we should show some respect. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, I mean, something that this uh, information triggers in, in my head is thinking about, but not everyone has a close connection to nature. Uh, I mean, like, there's a statistic that more of us are moving into cities now than, than before, right? Less people are living in the rural area. Um, is that is that is that good for the planet? I mean, what is your opinion of the increasing urbanization, I guess, of the world? That is a very very good point, Danny. Um, well, uh, it is only good to the planet as long as the people that are moving to the cities have awareness of their environmental cost. Meaning, you know, if you know that water is scarce, 
and you take a one hour long shower, then you're not doing your job, you know? So of course there is a whole corporate level of discussion about, you know, the corporations are the ones that are really screwing things up because of their abuse of the environment. And that's all true. But I wanted to, I want to talk to people, not to corporations, because I think the revolution, so to speak, starts at home, you know, and that the more people are aware of this, the more people are eating organic food, the more people are taking care of their bodies, the more people are interested in, even if you live in New York City, you can still go to Central Park or you can still go somewhere to be in touch with a little bit of nature and try to look at the sky. And, um, and we need that, you know, because we are, after all, creatures of nature. We are not creatures of sky rises. And so I think that we need this sort of connection with the more primordial us, so to speak. And, um, and it does worry me only in the sense that the people, if the people that are moving to the cities lose that connection completely. You know, as long as they are aware of it, it doesn't really matter. And as long as the cities are well-planned and designed in order to minimize their environmental impact, then that's unavoidable because that's where the jobs are and where the economics uh, moves, and, um, and, and we need that. Yeah, it sounds like uh, we definitely have the power to form our institutions and our cities in a way that would complement this status as being a, a custodian of the planet. <laughs> yeah, that's, and this may be the mission of your generation, you know, sort of like the awareness is beginning to come right now. You know, people are planting farms on top of roofs in New York City, which I think is really amazing. Uh, so they can, they can eat their own um, vegetables, you know, and that's really incredible. And, uh, and maybe the change is beginning, you know, you have Teslas and you have all these other things going on that are really expensive right now, but one day they, they won't be, you know, and the same with solar energy and wind power. And I think slowly there is a tide, tidal wave that is picking up momentum. And uh, the more people are aware of it, the better. And of course, you won't reach everybody. But you could, at reach, try, you could at least try to reach the people that listen to things like what you're doing and that read the newspapers and that read some of the science, you know, uh, to the general public uh, books. And, and slowly, you know, I think more and more people are going to be convinced of the importance of this. If not in a peaceful way, they, they will be convinced when, when hell breaks loose, you know, through global warming effects and stuff like that. Because people react to fear and crap is coming, you know, and, and, and it's coming real bad. You know, it's not just, you know, the weather being kind of uh, out of whack, but it's the lack of water in southwest United States, for example, and other places. And, and, and when you don't have water, when you don't have food, food um, bad things happen socially. You know, history has proven that over and over again. Um, and so... You know, that's something that one way or another, the awareness is going to come. Mm, great. Well, uh, that's uh, about all the time we have today. So thank you for joining me, Marcelo, on Grok Science. You're very welcome. <laughs>